It is time for another Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, host, sports manager at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And joining me, fresh off a weekend at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, is Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. we got a lot to talk about today, Terry. We're actually taping this on a Monday so that we can get out in front of game two a little bit. Uh, but we're going to get into some Cavs. We've got some Guardians um, we'll get into. Uh, interesting weekend for them. And uh, I have a Browns question I want to ask you about the Sean Watson. So. And we've got some good letters. So, Terry, the uh, you wrote a lot about the Cavs over the weekend after they dropped game one of the series, 101-97 to the Knicks. And I, one of the things I love about doing this with you is you're such a student of the game of basketball. I could just envision you sitting there watching the game just, they should be doing this, and they should be doing this, and they should be doing this. And so I just wanted to kind of see what was – you know, what were the scribbles in your notebook about how they can fix this uh, going into game two on Tuesday night? Let's get into it. Well, the interesting thing to me is the fact that the Knicks would really rebound and crash the boards was like no secret. It would be the same thing like the Knicks knowing that Donovan Mitchell is going to be a pain to uh, – you got to be all over Mitchell. Well, they try to be all over Mitchell, but – Basically, in the end, I'm sure the Knicks goals that hold them under 100 points will win. And the Cavs, I thought, were just derelict in how to deal with the onslaught on the boards from the Knicks. And, you know, people want to point to the big man. Okay, go ahead and do that. But I'm going to give you just two numbers right off the, uh, the start. One is the number 25, and the other is the number 13. The number 25 is somebody rebounds Evan Mobley and Jared Allen had. 13 is all the rest. And if you look at how the Knicks play, is they have guys coming everywhere, especially their guards, rebounding. And their guards really help on the defensive boards. And the Cavs guards, I found this to be almost a statistical impossibility. I don't know how anybody could be on a floor for 43 minutes at NBA game and not get a rebound. And who was that, Mr. Campbell? Darius, Darius Garland? Garland. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, and I like Darius too, but how does that happen? And just for the heck of it, I kind of rewatched about, you know, I rewatched the whole second half and a little more just to see. And, um, and you could just see the guards for the Knicks really helping out, coming from everywhere. So it wasn't just that they were more physical, you know, the different players. It was kind of a mode of attack. And if you look at that, too, so, for example, Josh Hart is a 6'4 guard slash forward. He had 10 rebounds. Um, remember, I mentioned the whole rest of the team at 13 for the Cavs. But you look at things like that. You know, Mitchell had five rebounds, and that's about his average. Um, Karis LeVert, look, I wrote this one play down. He he. He has a wide-open layup on the right side, David, and he goes up with his left hand and kind of bangs it off the rim. It was so strange. I don't know what he was looking at. Well, the whole game, I don't know what he's looking at. So, first of all, here's a weird stat. Coming into that night, Levert had played nine NBA playoff games, and any guess on how many points he averaged in those games? 12? 20. Really? 20. I mean, you would have guessed, like, 12 would be his at 20 over two years. So he's out there for 18 minutes. He goes one of seven. He gets a rebound. You know, Chetty Osmond played more small forward. Whatever, 19 minutes, he gets one rebound. And so my point is, if you want to improve your rebounding, if I'm J.B. Bickerstaff, I'm pounding them on those stats and saying, yes, they need Mobley and Allen to be stronger. But you guys got to get in there and help. So I was going to ask you about this, Terry. You, you, the game is Saturday night, and Sunday there's kind of some R&R, probably some film watching for mm -hmm. the Cavaliers. They got to get tougher, as you say, around around the rim, rebounding, boxing guys out. Do they do that today? I mean, can you like you don't want to beat your team up going into game two, but like these guys got to get a body on everybody. Like, and you said everybody has to rebound. Um, how do you, how, can you do this in practice without beating everybody up for tomorrow? No, you don't do it in practice. You just say, look, guys, this is how it is. You show them on film uh, because the last thing you need is somebody t stepping on somebody's foot in practice or whatever. 
uh, no, you don't do that. This is this is a test of wealth. You know, all the stuff that uh, JB talks about character, grit, you know, the junkyard dog mentality, the whole thing. And when I'm looking at this too, and I see, you know, some of the stats, right? Evan Mobley. Mobley was really a disappointment early in the in the game. He he misses a shot, gets his own rebound, and then spins and dunks it with his left hand. And I said, well, that's how you do it. But the rest of the game, other than maybe one or two other plays, um, and this is the first time I've written this about Mobley, he was soft. He was getting pushed around. Um, now, here's another thing that's kind of hard to believe. He's out there for 38 minutes, and he doesn't attempt a free throw. And I don't remember. I mean, sure, there were some things where I'm sure he was shoved or whatever, but it wasn't like I remember him getting decked and there was no whistle. He was, to me, was back in a way. Uh, Jared Allen, uh, you know, he uh, he took two. He took a, he was fouled once. So he was six of eight. I've always been, if you throw to Allen more near, near the rim, but there were a couple plays when I was looking at the tape again. He gets the ball five feet from the basket, and he just turns and whirls it to somebody for a corner three. I am sick of that. You know, yes, I know three points is better than two, but two points is better than none. And Jared Allen within five feet of the basket, yes, there's sort of somebody on his back. He makes close to 70% of his shots, shoot the ball, go up tough. And I think that's what I would do. I would I would pull these tapes out, you know, of shots that are near the rim where they went up soft, shots near the rim where they didn't take. And also just you could put together a five-minute collage of Nick's guards just crashing in to get rebounds. I'd say, this is where we start, right here, on this stuff. I mean, there's other things. But JV himself says if they don't improve on the on the boards, they lose. Period. End of story. Yeah. So, Terry, the um, it was really interesting because everything that we said and others said was was going to happen happened. Right. The Knicks dominated on the glass. Mm-hmm. The Knicks had the advantage on the bench. It, the one thing that I, I wanted to see how it played out was if you're a fan, a Cavs fan watching that game, Cavs fans are just like, hey, it's the playoffs. Like, where is the grit? Yeah. And and, you know, uh, Ashley Bastock, our colleague who was covering the game with Chris Fedor on Saturday night, wrote a piece about like the grittiest play of the night was by Donovan Mitchell jumping into the stands. And, the, mm-hmm. and the, probably the second grittiest play of the night was him going belly down on the floor to push that ball out to, to Jetty Osmond for the layup on that. I one, might even uh, argue that was the first. I mean, the high jump is kind of dramatic, but that was, that was kind of, I'm going there and here I go. But that, if you played any basketball at all, when you said, I'm going to go head first on a hardwood floor and in the fourth quarter, uh, you know you're going to feel that one. You really do know that. And you're correct. Those are the two toughest plays, and not a number of others come to mind. I will say so, this, uh, there was one where Okoro got run over by uh, uh, Randall, and he knew that was going to be bad, and it was. But – there weren't too many others. Did you see the amount of grit that you wanted to see out of that Cavs team on Saturday night? I guess my second question to you is, should we have expected to see what we saw? Because, you know, this is the youngest roster in the NBA. These guys have never done this before, and they've never played in a playoff game. In the playoffs, it, it is a battle. It is a never-ending 48-minute battle. Elbows, arms flying in the lane like it is a different animal and I, I i don't know that the Cavs were ready for that but i don't know that they could have been ready for that or could they they could have been more ready for that but i don't particularly blame the coaches on this i'm sure there was drilled to them um they probably figured it would be like some of the other games with the knicks and didn't realize that the knicks would take it to a higher level um garland to me first of all i think garland is a key to the series for them. He could score a lot more. Uh, when I was looking at the tape, there are a lot of mid-range shots available to him. Sometimes he didn't take them. Other times he was just ignored because Donovan was trying to, you know, basically carry the team on his back because he realized uh, the lads were not exactly, as you said, they were not vying for the Junkyard Dog Award here. <laughs> I mean, they just were not. They were kind of cowering in the corners like puppies, some of them. So, uh, he, tr- as you mentioned, I mean, he went over the scorer's table. He's on the floor. And to his credit, he came up with five rebounds. 
Uh, and well, I remember at one point he speared one with one hand. Uh, I thought it was it was a showy play, but I think he just wanted them to say, "Look, this is what you do, man. Go get it." And so, to that extent, I mean, Garland. This surprised him when he was bringing the ball up the floor. They double teamed him, and he had five turnovers. And how many assists did he have? One more than you did the other night. Really? Wow. One. Um, and I just think that he can break through some of those double teams. He could, he's been shown able to do the pass or see it coming, handle it better. That, I think, was the big surprise. I don't remember the other Knicks games where they trapped Garland like that. Because you would think, do you really want to trap Garland? Because then he might throw the ball to Mitchell. But they decided to do that. Basically, they're kind of trying to take Garland out of it. And uh, he was 7-13 from the field. And he can – there could be some more like floaters and things like that we didn't see from him. Uh, they took the lob away uh, when Garland was in the pick and roll. If they didn't trap him, they took it away from, from Allen. That's a favorite play of theirs. But guess what that does? That leaves him open from anywhere from 12 to 6 feet for whatever kind of shot he wants to take. And so he could hurt them doing that. Well, Terry, I'll tell you, I want to talk about Isaac Okora real quick, and then I want to get your thoughts on what they should do with the bench. So I think Mm -hmm. one of the biggest shots that we're going to see in game two tomorrow night is going to be early when Isaac Okoro gets his first corner three attempt. And if that first one goes in and he's feeling like he can get the ball to go through the basket, I... I think he's going to shoot more. He's going to shoot more freely. The, the other night we saw he got off to a rough start and he was hesitating and he started putting the ball on the ground to get to the to, to the rack after he wasn't taking the threes because he didn't believe he could make them. And I think the Cavs, when you see when you see the Cavs throwing him in the corner and he's hitting shots, they're scoring 120 points usually when he gets it going. So is that is that is that true? Do you think that well, should no, be something we should watch Everybody's going to hate me on this one. Number one is just because you're open doesn't mean you have to shoot it. The NBA has fallen into no matter who's open on a three-point line, heave it up there. If you haven't played in three weeks and you got a bad knee and you're not a great shooter to begin with and you're really out there to defend, just because you're open, you don't have to. I I was sitting with uh, Tom Withers and Brian Dulick from AP, and I'm like, he doesn't have to shoot it. I remember Lenny Wilkins when he would – when I would watch practice in the old days at the NBA, he would say two things. Sometimes he would say, say pull a guy privately, you know, just because you're open, you don't have to shoot it. You don't feel good about the shot. You don't have to take it because you're out here to do X, Y, and Z. And the other thing, there was another time like O'Carroll kind of bolted in the middle and I think Garland or somebody just fires this pass into him. Even if he catches it three feet from the basket, there's two big guys there. He's not going to make a shot. And just because you're open, seemingly doesn't mean you have to throw the pass to him. You have to take to account uh, the player. And if you're relying on Isaac Okoro to make threes to beat the Knicks, you will lose. It's not his game. You've got four other guys out there. Figure this out. And by the way, when Isaiah a couple times actually kind of dribbled the ball, he created a little bit of scrambling on defense and then to another pass where a guy was open, you know, that kind of stuff. So I disagree on that. Um, it's just not, you know, not there. I mean, he took six shots and four of them were three pointers. And by the Missed way, he took as many three pointers as Darius Garland. So there you are. Now, if you want that shot to fall, then you have to play Danny Green. See if he'll make it. See if they'll cover him. See if he'll make it. They're, they're they're afraid of Danny Green on defense because he's still come. He and he and uh, Ricky Rubio are in the same situation of coming off major ACL uh, knee surgeries, and they're probably not a hundred percent. But if we're talking about the seven empty minutes that Dwayne Wade, uh, Dean, I wish it was Dwayne Wade, that Dean Wade gave them, he went zero for one rebound. I mean, some of these numbers are deceiving where they go and they got outscored by 14 points when he's on the floor. It wasn't all him because unfortunately he was out there with Karis Laverta was running around making turnovers and just taking stupid shots. So that was a, a really bad combo. Uh, but they're going to have to figure this out. But but Green would be somebody I would try knowing that there's defensive limitations if you think it's so critical to make that corner three. But my argument would be also if you spread out 
uh, your two guards. You have them basically on opposite ends of the floor. You could do a lot of uh, uh, just ball movement and stuff like that. I, I, I was waiting for the high-low thing with uh, Evan Mobley and uh, Jared Allen. And that has worked against other teams. They didn't do it. Remember this, Julius Randle's out there in the second half. That knee was bothering him. He said he was uh, he was good in the first half, and he was there. And, you know, go at him. And he was feeling it, too. He was he was sucking the air when he was on the bench. Yeah, he, yeah, he was he's not conditioned to the way he wanted to be. Because he, he didn't have a full-court drill. He just played after, like, I think he missed three weeks. Yeah, and that won't be much better tomorrow night. You no. wouldn't think you'd be getting no. shaved. If in anything, three days, that so. ankle could be worse. So uh, there, there are a lot of things to ex- exploit. Um, I mean, you know, some of their guys didn't show up. You know, RJ Barrett was two for twelve. He looked lost. Quigley, who's a really good scorer off the bench, he went zero for five. I mean, a lot of people were blinded by the bright lights. But, but David, I got a question: Was there a rule before the game that the Cavs are not allowed to double team Jay, uh, uh, Brunson? Was was that? Did I miss that? No, no double teaming a Brunson allowed. That is not a rule. <laughs> so that's what you want to see tomorrow night. More yeah, double now teaming, and just, just like trap, trap his butt, blitzing you know, him when like he comes do. over half court. Yeah, just go out, make, let him throw the bar, RJ Barrow. Let's see what he does. You know, I know one thing. Brunson's got more. I love his game. He's got all these shots. He's got medium shots and fallaways and all kinds of stuff. I, I remember. Yeah, he's everything. He's left-handed. By the way, the Knicks cheat. They have two left-handed players. The Cats keep playing him to the right side. There was a key part late in the game, and Brunson's bringing the ball up. He's left-handed, and he passes it to somebody. He goes right back to Brunson, and there's Chetty sitting on his right hand, and sure enough, he goes right around him, makes a layup. I'm sure I, look, I, they drilled into all these guys. He's oh, left-handed. J- JB said it after the game. He said, among the things we screwed up, we were playing guys to the wrong strength of hand. Yeah, like he They're just left-handed. Flat out said it, after it, the game. it doesn't change. You know, Chris Let- Lenny Wilkins, the, the thing when he played, you know, was a left-handed uh, guard. He was a little like Brunson, really. He had all kinds of shots. And, um, he said, well, you know what? They would always play to the right anyway, or I set him up to the right and go back to the left. Yep. Well, th- those are all good ideas, Terry. So I want to get real quick. We got to take a break here. But one of the things I wanted to ask you, JB talked after the game about, he was talking about the bench and he's like, well, we're going to go, to, we're going to go to one guy. If that doesn't work, we're going to go to another guy. If that doesn't work, we're going to go to another guy until we find someone <laughs> who can give us what we need. So Terry, you have the JB Bickerstaff coaching hat on here. How are you going to structure this rotation tomorrow? Who do you want to see coming off the bench early? Uh, you were just talking about Dean Wade, who was one of the first off the bench the other night. How, who are you going to give first crack to here? Well, I would play LeVert again. As bad as he was. Um, so that would be one. Secondly, uh, I would go to uh, Dean Wade. I'm not, excuse me. I would go to Danny Green rather than Dean Wade. I would try that. Because if Wade had gone in, he had one rebound in seven minutes. You know, either that or you pull Wade over and go, you better get some rebounds your first couple minutes in there or you're coming out. Maybe you give these guys just a couple things to do when they go in. Um Chetty, yeah, we had good Chetty the other day. You know, he always scares me. So, but if I really want it, I don't like how it's going early, and I don't think they're competing. I'm putting the original drunk yard dog in a game. That's Lamar Stevens. If I see a coral just kind of looking shaky again, and that, because um, I did not think a coral's defense was all that great in that game. I go with Lamar Stevens. So that would be. So I'm looking for, for something different. I'm looking at Green and Stevens, and probably Levert would be my three. And but would you put Lamar is, Stevens on Brunson? Because Jetty I gave would, him. Why not? Yeah, I mean, he's got a few inches on him. He's why got not? some length. Yeah. Might, might be foul. He got fouls. Let's foul him a few times. You know. <laughs> Remember, and you are allowed. You made it clear that that rule, no turbo teaming Brunson, that's just an urban legend. You are allowed to do it. That is true. So, if Terry, the other got, guys start to make some shots, fine. Then you could you you could go back to one on one or whatever you want to do. <laughs> All right. Okay, we're gonna take a break here in a second. I I just want to throw this out. It makes me crazy. You've seen this for years, Terry. And I want to ask you about it. So Brunson the other night gets his second foul. Yep. Early in the first half, and they pull him. 
Mm-hmm. His second foul. And I never understand. I mean, th- these coaches know way more about basketball than I ever will. But they sat him. I think he played 21 points. He played um, – he had 21 points in 21 minutes in the second half. Mm-hmm. But in the first half, he played just nine minutes. He picked mm-hmm. up his third foul with 9-12 in the second quarter. Yeah. And they had him sit on the bench. You know how many fouls Jalen Brunson finished with the other night? Um, this was a three. 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 Yeah. And these coaches pull these guys out. I mean, it's the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And you're going to bench – and this happens across the league. You're going to bench one of your best offensive threats for eight, ten minutes in the first half because you're worried about them. I mean, they could fall out with eight or ten minutes left in the game, and you would be in the same boat if you yeah. if you bench him. What's your thoughts on on coaches sitting guys with two or even three fouls in the first I half? I don't mind pulling them with, with two early. And here's why, because I was probably going to get him some rest anyway late in the first quarter. So, all right, we're going to sit down here. I go in earlier with Quickly or whoever I want to go to. But then when I roll you back in for your usual thing in the second quarter with nine minutes to go or whatever, you're in for the rest of the half. That's all. We just gave you a longer rest. In the meantime, this let it sit in you that we got to watch this file thing. That's all. And so – you know, but then he picked the third up, as you said there. Uh, and I know you kind of watch it. He's watching the scoreboard. He's probably thinking, this thing's close. And I don't even have my, my, I don't even have Brunson out there. So I'm going to be more cautious. That's probably the other thing that's going on. Had the Cavs been up by 10, I, he, Thibodeau probably, probably would have played it differently. Yeah. Every yeah. game is different. It's just, you're like, all right. Like, but, but you could do that easily. You pull him out with two. So he sits from, you know, Say, I think that was in the middle of the first quarter, somewhere in there, he got the second one. And um, then he sits down till 10 minutes to go in the second quarter, and then he finishes it up. That makes sense to me. So, yeah. all right, Terry, let's take a break here. When we come back, we are going to get into the Guardians, and we're going to play a game called uh, what are we going to call it? Is this real or not? Real or not? Is it yeah. real? <laughs> it's like our own reality show on the podcast. Okay. So, all right, I'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We are back on Terry's Talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluto. We're going to get into some Guardians here, Terry. All right, so we're going to call this, uh, is it real? Is that what we're doing? Real or yeah, not? Yeah, real or not. <laughs> okay. And we're not going to go through the whole roster. of. We're just going to do primarily hitters because pitchers have had so few innings. Well, some of these guys have had 40 or 50 at-bats. And I'm going to ask you, David, Oscar Gonzalez, one of my favorites, is batting 132. We're not saying he's a 132 hitter, but Oscar's struggling. Is this real or not? It's real right now. And we were talking last week, Terry, about does he need to go down to Columbus for a week or three and straighten some things out? I mean, he hit a ball really hard, I think, in his last at-bat in Washington. Yeah, he hit a rocket to the first baseman, but the rest was pathetic. But he's swinging at pitches, so many pitches out of the zone. We saw this when we were there for opening day, like from from the get. His mm-hmm. swing just has not looked crisp and tight. It seems like it's a little loopy, a little loose. I don't know. I'm not a hitting coach, but he doesn't look like he's swinging the way he was last year. What do you think? He's late. Yeah, he's late on a lot of outside pitches. He used to hit pitches outside of the zone, but well, rip on the right center or whatever. But that one ball he finally did first base one was like it. But I, I would be surprised. I mean, I would, let's put it this way. I expect, I don't know, but I expect him to be sent to the minors by the end of the week, if not sooner he needs to play all the time all right i'll throw another one out well <laughs> why not zanino 313 <laughs> uh i think it's not real just because okay. i can't see him sustaining that for the whole season I, th- I i think if he hits 280 or 283 that would be a really good year uh i don't know terry real or not real what do you think Well, if you look at Zanillo's career, no, he's not a 313 hitter. But the doubles, the home runs, he does have some power. So um, it's like half real. How's that? (laughs) Sure, why not? (laughs) Yeah, well, it shows that uh, the good thing is he's a right-handed hitter. He had that uh, thoracic whatever the Jurassic Park surgery is not quite that, but it's a bad one on his left shoulder. And if you're a right-handed hitter, you know, your left arm, your left shoulder often carries a lot of the, uh, um, 
you know, the burden for power. And by the way, I was just wondering if maybe, I don't know why it would impact his ability to block balls in the dirt, that surgery with the left arm, but maybe it does. I don't know. I just, I had a stat over the weekend where they had allowed at 13 pitches and wild pitches their first 12 games, um, by far the most in the majors, they only allowed 49 out of all of last year. So it wasn't like suddenly everybody's just bouncing the ball over the place and throwing it to the backstop. So anyway, that was that. All right, here's another one for you. I get to ask the next one. You take this Go. one. Go. Okay. What is yours? All right, I was going to say Josh Bell. 190. 190. And he's got an on-base percentage of 304. Real or not real? Not real. I mean, we'll we'll see if he could end up, you know, in that area. The problem is Josh Bell, and I'm going to look it up, when he is a slump, he doesn't just have a little bit of a dip. He is a Grand Canyon. And you look at the 53 games he hit in San Diego at the end of the year, and his batting average is 192 in those games with a 587 OPS. But that came after he batted 301 in 103 games at Washington. He likes that ballpark. So um, we'll have to see how that goes. But when he's not hitting, I mean, he he looks horrible, but you could just see the strength there. But I also could see now why this is not a guy that you could think is going to, you know, hit a consistent 280 with 30 homers. And I – there's just, just too many holes in his swing, but it would be nice to have a guy that where he can get hot for a couple of weeks and carry the team. Yeah, well, he started that over the weekend, didn't he? He mm-hmm. hit the three games in Washington, six hits. I think he had four doubles and a few ribbies and a, mm-hmm. and a home run. So he's he might be turning around. And um, you know, yeah, you look back sign. at his career, Dave, in 2019, and this is a you know the 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 bell that you would love to see. 2019 is 277 with 37 homers, 116 RBIs, OPS of 936. Um, it's interesting. He doesn't strike out a ton, but he has those, it's almost like now those Oscar Gonzalez, really bad at bats, just slow rollers and things like that. So we'll see. Okay. So whose turn is it? Because I'm, I'm old. You do remember. one and I'll do one. How about All that? All right. Miles Straw, 333. I think that's real. Yeah. I mean, we've seen him be more aggressive. Mm -hmm. He seems like he's putting more contact on the ball. I think he's got nine walks Mm -hmm. and 12 strikeouts. Um, And he just seems like he's more in command of his offensive game this year from what I'm seeing. Yeah, 333, no. But can he be the guy that hit 285 after he got traded to Cleveland in 2021? A guy who has a career 305 average in the minors and nearly 500 games. Uh, yeah, why not? Um, so he's starting to bunt more, and he is really good athletically. So I wouldn't say 333, but 275, 280 with stolen bases and the defense and everything else. Because that was one of the reasons I, I defended him in the past was, you know, the things that Terry Francona talks about, well, the guy's baseball card. Uh, What does it tell you? And he went through the minors. Now, he in the minors, I will say, he played in some places that were really good to hit, like the Texas League, Round Rock. He played a lot in Texas because he's in the Houston chain, and that's hot weather, hard ground, and so on. You kind of look at where some of these minor league things were played. Like I remember – the Dodgers would have all these guys that would play in Albuquerque, which was a hitter's paradise in the old days, and, and they would rack up these stats, and the Dodgers just knew they were, were not real, and they would trade some of these guys for better players based on that. But the fact that Miles hit 285 after coming to Cleveland, and he was hitting 262 at the time uh, when the Astros traded him here, um, I think it's pretty real. He'd be better. All right, I got one last one for you. All right. Josh Naylor. Yep. Batting 173 with a 250 on base percentage and a 288 slugging percentage. Ugh. Real or not real? Is this what we're going to see from him this year? It better not be real, or this is going to be a very long year. 
and I actually went and kind of looked at that because I thought, well, maybe some of that, have they faced a lot of lefties? Because Johnson's bad against lefties. But he's only 0 for 11 against lefties. Um, 9 for 41 against right-handers. His uh, plate discipline is really bad right now. Uh, I don't know how many walks he has, but you, like there was a, I can't remember if it was yesterday or the other day, he came up, but like the pitcher had thrown seven straight balls, and of course he swings at the first pitch and fouls it off, and this, and it just, he just seems to be an emotional funk. And so uh, I hope that's not real, because I thought this would be a year he hits 25 to 30 homers. Um, but, you know, he's still, he's kind of like, he's still a younger guy, and he is coming off that major, um, leg injury from two years ago and and that's why i think maybe we were hoping for more here but he just he seems very excitable at the plate right now you know and of course he seems excitable just about most things in life yeah right. um so he does have six walks and nine strikeouts terry yeah just. so he you know he's i mean i'm looking he had i mean his career time in cleveland which now covers this is going into the season covers 213 games. He, he's a 250 hitter with 731 OPS. So that's a some numbers on the baseball card there. But he's a key guy because if he's not hitting, uh, they don't have a lot. You know, there's, this is a guy I'll say real or not, and I'll just answer it. Brennan, uh, Brennan hitting 286. Yes, it's real. He's he's just a good all around hitter. You're not going to get a ton of power out of him, but he's a good hitter. All right. Anybody else you wanted to mention real quick, uh, real or not no. real? And all right, I think we covered most of the most of the starting. Yeah, I mean, you know, lineup. Jose and those guys. I think fans know the Rosario never hits till it's May anyway. So um, let's not let's not worry about that. And cool. Well, the Guardians got rained out in Detroit today, and it sounds like they're gonna. This is really weird, Terry. They're mo- they had a six ten game, I think, tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. And they're going to move it. They're going to move tomorrow Tuesday night's game and make it part of a of a back to back double header tomorrow, starting around one. Mm-hmm. So anybody who had tickets to that evening game tomorrow night, they the game basically got moved up by two hours, which is I thought they might split that, but they're doing a natural double header. So well, they probably um, figured you can go to either game, and my guess is they're not selling a ton of tickets right now in Detroit anyway. Yeah, probably true. So. All right, Terry, we got a few minutes here to talk some Browns. All right. I never thought I was going to ask you this question, but let me build up to it first. So today we find out that Jalen Hurts and the Eagles are signing a five-year record-breaking extension and worth $255 million. It's an NFL-high $51 million a season. Deshaun Watson of the Browns has now moved down to number five in yearly average salary at $46 million. Do you want to take a crack at the top five, or do you want me to just read them? Jalen Hurts, okay. number one. Deshaun Watson, number five. Who's in between? Oh, you're talking average salary per year. For 2023, Rogers. yep. Yeah, Rodgers is, is ahead of him. Aaron Rodgers uh, at 50.3, you're right. And um, I'm trying to think who else did it. Is Josh Allen up there now? Nope. Uh, okay. Russell Wilson of the Broncos is at 48.5. Oh. He's number three. And then I wouldn't have gotten this one. Kyler Murray of the Cardinals at 46.1. Yeah. yeah but uh, to me, the, the average salary per year, I mean, we all wish we could have those. But the real number is guaranteed money. And so we all know about Deshaun Watson's $230 million guarantee. Yeah. Um, this contract for Jalen Hurts is $179 million guaranteed. Mm-hmm. So Terry – with Watson's contract being overshadowed by some of these other guys, did they get a bargain when they signed Deshaun Watson for what they signed him for? No. Or is that a ridiculous question? It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> no. He's still got the highest guaranteed number. Because that's what, you know, when you're really stuck with the guy, if he doesn't turn out, that's a problem. The other thing is um, Hertz was their guy already. They didn't trade six draft choices for him. See, remember the cost of of Watson is factored into the fact that you had to trade for him first, give up assets, tie up cap space. These other contracts, Patrick. By the way, the reason that is two hundred thirty million for uh, an average of forty six at the time for forty six million a year for Watson was because Patrick Mahomes was averaging 45 million and I'm his agent. I got to get a million dollars more per year. It looks good on my resume. That is a fact. That's the kind of stuff they do. And um, 
the real thing is a guaranteed number. Secondly, Hertz took his team to the Super Bowl. And that, that is true. That's the bottom the bottom line is two things, the guaranteed dollars and the results on the field. Now we will see what Deshaun does, but when you add up the quote the cost of Deshaun Watson to ignore all the draft capital involved in that trade is missing part of the equation. All valid points, Terry. I, I tell you, when I was a kid, I remember the Lakers signed Magic Johnson to a 25-year contract at a million dollars a year. Yep. Do you remember this? I know and, the agent who did it. And people were like, oh, my God, that's crazy money. And why would they do it for so long? And, like, the longer it went on, the cheaper it became. And, like, how ridiculous was it by the end? Like, a right. million dollars was nothing. So, like, I'm just trying to project forward, like, two or three years. And let's mm-hmm. say that the Browns' dreams come true and they go deep into the playoffs or make the Super Bowl this year or next. And $46 million might be the number 10 contract. Well, of course. Yeah, so. you win the Super Bowl, then it's like name your price. Right. Or even go there. Um, that contract was done by a guy named George Andrews. Uh, Magic Johnson's was. And Magic's idea at that point was he wanted this, it's like this perpetual million dollars a year, which seems like a staggering amount of time where guys are making about a hundred grand back then. And for the family, for grandchildren, for everybody coming in. He also represented uh, Brad Doherty, by the way, and helped Brad get that. Now within three years, they renegotiated Magic's thing. But um, I remember that, um, George George Andrews was a was was a really good friend of mine, and he used to explain to me that uh, even he knew that when you really looked at that contract over all that time, there was no way it was ever just going to stay in place for twenty five years. But it was kind of a groundbreaking thing. It, it was good for his business. Magic wanted it, and he knew, assuming Magic stayed healthy, they would be able to work it. And if Magic had a cataclysmic injury. He's worth $25 million over, you know, that long. It's one of these deals where uh, we go back on pitchers. Like, I am amazed when these pitchers turn down a chance to sign extensions. Uh, I forgot whether it was $38 million or $42 million guaranteed that they offered for over three or four years to, uh, I think it was four years, to Clevenger with a chance to make even more, and he turned it down. He already had one Tommy John surgery. Of course, what happens that was the other reason they traded him um, was he turned on the contract. Then he was kind of acting, you know, off the rails there during the COVID year. Um, and then, of course, what happens, he blows that elbow again. And he's been signing one-year contract since. So these guys, what you know, you, you kind of factor in, granted, I switched sports and everybody, but pitchers are there. Or if a player has a sincere fear of injury, I know one thing that's also come into play with Jose Ramirez. He's sitting there going, let me see. I'm going to get $20 million a year for the next seven years. And, you know, what if, uh, you know, everything's all set up in the Dominican and this, and I like it. Nobody bothers me here. Um, I'll take it. And, frankly, in three or four years, if he, you know, if he's hitting 40 home runs a year, I, they could probably rework it somehow. Well, I don't have to tell you this, Terry, but, like, the Deshaun Watson, will it be the worst decision in franchise history or not, is the number one narrative sure. in Cleveland sports over the next few years. And so I, I would love to have this discussion a couple of years from now and see if where Deshaun's on that list and kind of what we think about This it. is one that I hope yeah. I'm really wrong about because I've had bad feelings from day one. And and you've been on the record, and, and yeah. Um, yeah, so the Browns fans because deserve it, because a if winner. I'm real, if I if I'm really wrong, it it this will take years and years to dig out. So because one thing, he will not be bad enough where they're going to go get the first, second, or third third pick in the draft. You know, this would be a guy that just struggles, and they're going you know eight and nine or nine and eight, and that's not good enough. All right. Okay. Well, the Browns are getting back to off-season workouts this week, and so we'll be following that. And, of course, the draft is a week from Thursday, and Browns fans will not be watching their team make a pick on Thursday night for round one, but they'll have picks the rest of the way. So we'll be tracking all that. So, all right, Terry, there was some bad hosting last week. I completely have realized that I did not mention the email to send in questions last week. So and? I'm going to do it right now so I don't forget. So if you want to send us comments, questions, 
good jokes. We'll see if we can get them on the podcast. Just email us at sports at cleveland.com. Again, that's sports at cleveland.com. And we will try to get it on next week's podcast. So speaking of which, we do have a couple of questions, Terry. You brought up magnet schedules last week because mm-hmm. they were giving out magnet schedules at the home opener. And Ben in Rocky River says, hi, Dave and Terry, big fan of the podcast. On your last episode, you were discussing magnet schedules. And I also collect both magnet and pocket schedules. Ah. Believe it or not, there is a rather small but passionate group of us. I have every Indians or Guardians pocket schedule dating back to 1967, and I'm very glad they're still making them. Unfortunately, many teams across all sports are going digital with things like schedules, tickets, and even now many teams don't offer free programs. Instead, fans are invited to scan a QR code shown somewhere in the stadium to access the game program. I guess that's the times we live in now. But it's unfortunate that many of these small, fun, and inexpensive pieces of memorabilia are going by the wayside. And again, that's Ben and Rocky River. Thanks for that, Ben. So I know you. <laughs> we talked last week. Uh, Roberta loves to collect the the, ske- the 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 magnet schedules. Is how we kind of got on this, right? Mm-hmm. We should see if if you have if you are listening out there and you have some kind of sports related collection thing, we'd love to hear about. It. I think this is really interesting. So Ben says he's got. Pocket schedules dating back to 1967. Those would be really cool to look through um, just in terms of the artwork. Anything you collect, Terry, in sports? No. Sports related? No, Not really. But, no. I, maybe it's one of those things I'm in sports, so I don't. Uh, I'm, I, uh, I do have a couple things I save from people. Like um, I got it from the Fred McCall's family. He sent out a bunch of media people. Fred had a million ties. And after he passed his way, uh, he, his family sent out one, and I have one of those. I have a Joe Tate bobblehead because he is a close friend of mine. I have a Rule B Free bobblehead. So that's really about it, but I don't particularly collect a lot, just kind of things. And uh, I got a John Adams pin so uh, that they're going to be giving away later on. I'm keeping that. So I don't really have too much of anything there. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I just kind of get random things here and there. You know, I have a signed Walter Payton Sports Illustrated mm-hmm. that I that I got along the way, and um, you know, ticket stubs, which are kind of going the the way of the dodo, yeah. also. So, which yeah. is kind of sad. But uh, anyway, send us if you have anything you collect that's kind of interesting, sports related. Send it to us at sportsatcleveland.com. We'll try and talk about that on the podcast next week. So, all right, and we got one more here. This is from Chris in Denver. And he says, hey, Dave and Terry, I have a follow-up question to what I asked last year about the Guardians name change. Now that we're in year two, what are you hearing from your readers on the name change? Are Clevelanders accepting the new name or is there still a level of outrage that the team moved away from the Indians? Thanks, Chris in Denver. So I haven't been hearing much at all, Terry. I think people have moved on, right? There's still some people don't like it. But, I mean, there's sort of the people that the Dolans are cheap. They lied to us. Now they changed the name. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, what really did help them was last year playing well. I just think, you know, that. And the fact that the team isn't sitting there playing the uh, wardrobe police, they don't care what you wear to the game. So um, they played that way. I just don't think it's a. For some people, it'll be a huge deal forever, and for others, it's they're they're more in the camp of I am that I grew up in this town when this team could have left several times. And that is not an exaggeration at all, and it's still people don't want to hear it, but it's Cleveland is still the smallest market with teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball. And I had people who were top executives that say one day they could easily lose uh, the baseball team because of the it's the hardest to support you know over 162 games and when you're talking about corporate things and the fact that for all the complaining about the dolans you got two things one is they got a strong organization where the top people want to work there and number two they don't want to move it they don't want to have that as their legacy so um guardians indians my goodness the, the script is i'm old my eyes are bad sometimes you look at that you don't even know what it says <laughs> on the well, your point seriously about, no really your, yeah. your point about the playoffs last year though terry is so important I, yeah when i saw this question today the first thing i thought thought of was tom hamilton's eloquent beautiful sign off the last day of the season 
that they were the Indians. And yeah. that, and one of the things he says was, you're going to come to the ballpark with your kids and your, your parents and your brothers and sisters, and you're going to make new memories with a new team. And it's going to be just as memorable. And that's what last fall was. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was new memories made, and I really do think that helped kind of um, put and that in And Tom went through a number people. of those things, you know, where the team might move and he could lose his job. I mean, all that kind of stuff. Um, now, he came right after uh, Dick Jacobs had bought the team, so that, that really alleviated a lot of that. But he he had heard enough of those stories from Herb Score and others. I mean, when Peter Bavese was here, I mean, that thing was just about it. And that was so, they were so smart, they think it was a good idea to move it to Tampa Bay or St. Petersburg. You know, let's find even a worse market. Yeah, well, thanks for that question. And again, if so I don't screw it up this week, send us anything you want to say at sports at cleveland.com. Put Terry's talking in the subject line, and we'll try to get it on next week's podcast. So, all right, Terry, I think we're almost done here. I... And have been asking you every week for a book recommendation. You're a prolific reader as well as a prolific writer. What are you reading these days? All right. I just finished this book. It's called The Making of Hoosiers, the movie Hoosiers. It's a book about the making of it. It's written by Gail, G-A-Y-L-E, Johnson. The Making of Hoosiers by Gail Johnson. First of all, I love the movie Hoosiers, and I've seen it far too many times because it seems like it just pops up all over the place. But there's some cool stuff in there, like Gene Hackman in the middle of it is having beers with um, Dennis Hopper. And Hackman is very discouraged by the whole movie. We're, this is going to be, the, it's going to kill our careers, Dennis. It's going to kill us. This thing's awful. Name one basketball movie that ever made a dime. I don't know why I took it. And apparently Hackman, what now? While Hackman was like great with the, all the extras, and the, and they they mostly had small college and junior college basketball players in this cast. He was rough on the director. He fought him on everything, and it was a younger guy named David Onspaugh who basically cut his heels on on a thing called Hill Street Blues. Hmm. And they were sitting there, and the pit, it was this was the Onspaugh and a guy named Angelo Pizzo. They were. Um, classmates at the University of Indiana. This is their dream thing, you know, to have this. And Hackman took it. And later he confessed, I don't know why I took it. I needed the money. And on top of that, he was very worried about doing well because his contract called not for 10% of the net profits, 10% of the gross. So he just thought nobody was going to see this. Of course, it Jeez. turned out to be very good for him because, you know, it keeps being recycled. Hopper, meanwhile, thought this was a great movie. He loved it. He was just finally got sober and he got to play a drunken guy who was coming off and he just was glad somebody wanted him. Then and then the other key person in there is Barbara Hershey, who's this teacher. And I guess they did all these scenes with her and Hackman and this, and they all got cut. Oh, there was more family scenes, Indiana Farm scenes. So she didn't like the movie at all after it came out. Hackman admitted he's still amazed how good it came out. Hopper said, I told you everybody along this was going to be a great movie. Um, and But there's a lot of things in the scenes they shot. And they really, if you watch it, it was on the other night, which made me uh, go back to this book, which I read about a year ago, and look at some stuff. They run a lot of the old-fashioned plays around the 50s and this. And, and granted, this is a, a slice of rural America basketball from the 1950s. You know, this is not, you know, what you what you would see there. And it was based on this Milan team from India, from Indiana. Uh, although uh, the two guys who, uh, uh, Anspa and, and Pizzo, the, the, the director and the uh, scriptwriter, uh, they admit they based it kind of a mild Bob Knight was Hackman. And so that was, there's a lot of neat things in there. Also, when you read a book like this, you find out, you go, how do they ever make a movie? It just sounds oh, like incredible. a disaster. And they, they kept having rain every day. They wanted to shoot all these scenes outside. It just kept raining. And uh, But when you look, in fact, if you look at that, there's a lot of scenes where they shot uh, like a, a farms and a bright sky, but it's always gray and gloomy. And that's because yeah, the weather funny. wouldn't cooperate. Yeah, and it's funny you say about that. I've been watching this show on Paramount Plus, Terry, called The Offer, and it's about the making of The Godfather. Mm-hmm. And boy, you talk about movies that, that it's amazing they ever got made. That one, the, the Paramount wasn't going to make it if if they were going to um, bring in like um, 
Al Pacino to do Michael yeah. Corleone. Like the, yeah. the, the head of Paramount was like, we're not making the movie. He's too short and he yeah. has no star power. But, and, and then there was all this um, uh, Italian pushback about it's going to do that. And they were yeah. protesting against the movie. And it's like, so I've, I've been watching that. And I've also been reading um, a book that I got for Christmas from Francis Ford Coppola. It's basically his notebook that he used to make the wow. movie. So it's funny to see kind of the two play off of each other, but yeah, it's, with all the production and the, the weather and all, it's amazing. Anything ever gets, then it's always funny who wanted apparently nicholson wanted the part of heckman's and but he had some other commitment and couldn't get out of it and he always regretted not getting that part that would have been interesting how about nicholson oh, yeah huge part, basketball you know? fan yeah. yeah and also that um barbara hershey's just like i don't know why i took this they all lied to me you know <laughs> that kind of thing which if you because the, the basically the script that she saw that's not what they shot you know <laughs> and you would never know watching it i mean these are all people are all pros and hopper just thought this was a grand old time <laughs> so he got to be in indiana and just thought this was terrific those guys went on to make uh the movie rudy which did well and then they they didn't do much after that um a couple movies that hit and miss and that that didn't do much and they teach at the university of indiana they were the two guys that um allowed spent a lot of time with gail johnson i'm not sure how much they got from the other stars uh and then there's a lot about uh who some of the kids were that were the basketball players so it's a fun book you can get it on amazon i went to check and um have at it and by the way it's worth if you're driving to Indianapolis off the interstate there from here, Knightstown, Indiana is where they shot it. And the Hoosiers gym is there. I went there and I wrote a little thing a few years ago. And then now they have like 50 to 100 basketball games and your different high schools come in and play in this little gym. It's very cool. Oh, sweet. It's kind of like uh, Cooperstown. Where they have yeah. people come by and play in the Hall of, the Hall of yeah, Fame. Yeah, there's a the picture there. up there. I was, it's, it's, but it's a fictional thing, but it's there you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, those guys, they made Hoosiers and Rudy and called it. If you do that, you can pretty much. Yes. You've, you've accomplished you your life. Rest, yeah. rest of your life. Yeah. And yeah. They, just they take the rest of your life others. off. Yep. <laughs> All right, Terry. Thanks for making time today, everybody. Enjoy basketball this week. And we will talk to you next week on Terry's Talking.